Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Today's episode was recorded at our summer festival and for many people was one of the highlights of the event. Nicholas Frank flew over from Hamburg to be with us and to tell us the extraordinary story of growing up as the son of the leading Nazi Hans Frank, who was responsible for governing Poland during the war. Here he is in conversation with James. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, for coming. And, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled that my old friend Nicholas Frank is here, come all the way over from Germany, especially to come and talk to us today. Um, it's, 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 we've talked a lot about the legacy. And, of course, the legacy of the Second World War in Britain means very, very different things here than it does in Germany. You know, how do you... To the victor, the spoils to a very, very large extent. But how do you deal with this if you are part of a Germany that created the, the 12-year Reich? How do you deal with having a father who was absolutely the beating heart of the Nazi regime? Uh, and that's what Nicholas has had to cope with. And I remember, Nick, um, a few years ago, we were in Wewel Castle, the traditional palace of the Polish kings, uh, and a beautiful place it is with this sort of incredible courtyard. And it, it looks like something out of a sort of Grimm's fairy tale, really, right in the heart of, of Krakow. It's a, it's, a, it's a stunning place. And this was your home at the, when you were born, wasn't it? And, and, and brought up. And I remember walking through some of those rooms and seeing that fireplace. And there's that photograph of you with your siblings and your mother by the fireplace. And we paused and there it was. And I was thinking about that incredible passage of time. I mean, what was it like living in Wevel at that time? Uh, for me, it was uh, during the war, the best time I had. And uh, I like most the long aisles in the Wawel Castle because I had a little car and I always was waiting behind the corner when a grown up passing by and then I accelerated and hurt them. <laughs> and uh, then looking up and they had painful faces, but I knew they can't do anything because I am the son of such a powerful man. <laughs> and they forced themselves to smile and saying, oh, Nicky, that was not so good a thing, but go on, go on. And I was happy. <laughs> I mean, we should explain that, of course, your, your father's background was as the lawyer for Hitler, wasn't it? That was his start uh, in the so-called, in German, Kampfzeit, before Hitler took over power in Germany in 1933. And he was his private lawyer. And this was the time where he was nearest to the Führer. 
and he really fell in love with him. Uh, he loved, as my eldest sibling used to tell us, he loved Hitler more than his own family, which was true. And um, Hitler had a lot of trials, but nearly all he won, not because of my brilliant father, but because of our German justice during the Weimar Republic, they didn't acknowledge the Republic. They all wanted to have another new empire, I would say. And uh, after Hitler took over power in Germany, politically spoken, my father was a dead man. He was Reichsminister, but without portfolio. He got a good salary. He had his Academy for German Right. Nobody cared about it. And suddenly he got this phone call when we invaded Poland, uh, Frank soll kommen, Frank should come. And he came to Hitler's train and within 10 minutes he was appointed as governor general for occupied Poland. So politically spoken, he was responsible for every killing, for every death camp, for every forced workers into the Reich. He was responsible for it. So over three million. Over three million, yes. Why do, why do you think, though, that he was chosen to be the governor general of the general government? Yeah. I mean, you know, Poland wasn't even given a name, was it? It was just the... Uh, because of his time when uh, my father was his personal lawyer, they were very close and Hitler found out, which I also found out later, my father had an absolutely doggish character. He was a slimy person. And being so near to a more and more becoming powerful person was his big luck. And Hitler knew exactly that my father would never really be against what he has planned what would happen to Poland. So he was like a lackey. He, w he would do what he was... What yes, he would be a, yes. an efficient administrator. Yes, that's for sure. And he was... didn't care. He was brought up as a Catholic. He could study law in the Weimar Republic. So he knew by heart, by soul and by brain what's right, what's wrong. And he was going on and he loved more his 110 uniforms and he was in great love with his new Mercedes, for instance, because this new, like a tank built Mercedes, had the same yellow lights on the lights like Hitler's. That made him proud and he gave a shit about all the dying people around him. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you get a very clear sense, don't you, that he absolutely loved the trappings of power, the money, the food, the champagne, the kind of, you know, lording it up, ruling the roost in Poland like the former kings. I mean, he was living like a, like a king, wasn't yes. he, in his he own little fiefdom? He also was nicknamed in Berlin, especially by Goebbels and all the others, as the king of Poland. And when you were there, you were living a pretty luxurious life, weren't you? Yes, because we, uh, every visitor of our father of, or of our mother 
uh, had some gifts for us. But that was interesting. My next elder brother, I was the youngest one, my next elder brother is two years older. We immediately took those gifts and destroyed them. Did you? Always wanting our sentence more, we have to find what is in it. And later on, as a kitchen psychologist, I would say every German grown-up who was living in the government shelter knew exactly what horrible crimes were committed every day through the Germans. And this nervousness, this bad consciousness, went down on the children, so we destroyed everything. Do you think it was almost a subconscious thing? For me, for it? the children, for sure. For children, for sure. We, uh, we, I, I never knew at that time what means a ghetto, what means Jews, or all this kind of stuff. No, of course not. We just knew we have a powerful father, yeah. we can do, we had our own servant, and I used, we had a weekend castle robbed by uh, the Count of Potocki, and uh, I remember till nowadays, I, he, his name was Johann. And I was up in the first floor, the big, big staircase up there, and I used uh, to shout at Johann, who was downstairs, Johann! And he went up and he said, bitte, please, and he went up all the stairs and coming to me and I said, thank you, and run away. <laughs> that was also to show how powerful I was. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when, you're, when your parents uh, and your father has so much power, you can see how as a, as a small child, I mean, you were only born in 1939, weren't you? So you were very little at this time. I mean, what, what could you possibly know? You can see how that would, would rub off. I mean, what, I mean, it always seems to me that the leading Nazis were just living in a, in a fantasy world, albeit a very, very warped one where suddenly they've been given everything and, and they're just making up the rules as, of, of, of how things should be. It's kind of sort of uncontrolled power. And, I mean, what, what could you remember of that? I mean, your father was actually a pretty cultured man in many ways, wasn't he? He could sort of play the piano and well-read and all these sort of things and like fine art and, and so on. I mean, do, do you remember parties? Do you remember seeing other leading Nazis yes. and generals walking through? I remember the big parties in the castles where we always, uh, in the beginning, we have to give a hand kiss to the women and to make our servant to the men. And uh, after the third woman, we were confused and gave the men the hand kiss and made our bowing head mm -hmm. and always laughing and this was one of the things and the other that for instance uh, once I visited together with my mother the Krakow ghetto and uh, this burned into my brain because there was a lot of lot people around our Mercedes my wife uh, my mother was sitting in front I was sitting with my beloved nanny in uh, the back seats and I stuck out my tongue against a much older boy and he went away very sadly looking. 
and I felt a big triumph because I have beaten him. But Hilde, my nanny, drew me back. And later, when I wrote my book, which just came out here in England, um, I went to Hilde and asked her, this is in my brain, what was it, what was it? And he said, it was a Krakow ghetto and your mother was shopping there, setting surprises for herself and we were waiting outside. And some other scenes I have also, we were in a, also for me it was a wonderful afternoon. There was a wild donkey and very hungry, slim persons were forced to sit on this donkey and they got a clap and the donkey jumped and the men fell off and were put against on the back of this donkey and I was laughing and uh, in the office of the first soldier I became cacao and some chocolate and later Hilde told me uh, it was an outside camp of a concentration camp and that always prisoners who were forced to play something for the son of the governor general. Mm. I wonder till nowadays why was Hilde with me at this camp? Now she was a beautiful looking girl and she had a lot of love affairs in that time and I think it was a love affair with this <laughs> commander of this outside camp. So who was so was, you, you you mentioned her and your, and, and, your, and your nanny. I mean, were they the was she the one who was really bringing you up and, and yes. looking after you? I mean, what yes. was your relationship at this uh, as a young boy with your mother and your father? I didn't know my mother. Uh, also, not my next elder sister, my brother Michael, and the next elder sister Kitty, uh, <coughs> and uh, because my mother used to be away, she had her own Mercedes own budget and uh, when my father by the way when he was appointed to governor general he knelt down in front of my mother in uh, our villa in uh, berlin and said brigitte you will become the queen of poland and my mother liked this very much she came from a very poor family she was secretary by profession and suddenly she was a queen so she didn't care about her daughters and sons, which is understandable uh, in a certain way. And she dealt, before Hitler came to power, he always dealt a lot with uh, German Jews, took in commission furs, selling them for better price. So she knew a lot of Jewish people, but she never did anything. There was one scene which I found out in Berlin where hundreds of Jews before the Americans entered the war were standing in front of the American embassy to get a visa. And one of them was, uh, in German you called it agent, agent for first and so he saw suddenly Brigitte Frank was passing by. And he went to her, she was, my mother was together with two friends of hers and said uh, uh, Mrs. Reichsminister, maybe you remember, my name is Pflaumbaum, uh, I need a visa, could you please help me? And my mother answered in a very 
smiling way, she said, oh yes, Mr. Pflaumann, I remember you well. You were such a great guy. We did a lot of good business together. And yes, my husband told me you have to leave Germany, but I bet you will get a visa for sure, and went away. And I, I tracked this name Pflaumbaum. And I found out that he was also killed by us, by the Germans. But one sentence my mother left me, not personally. She wrote it in a letter to one of her girlfriends. Uh, she used as a secretary, by the way, always this uh, coal paper, coal paper. So she always had a copy. And in one of her letters, she wrote to this lady, if I think backwards, we were real cruel. She never told it to me personally. But this is a sentence where I can live with. And another thing was very good. She never in front of me or as far as I remember, she never said to me, oh, your father, your beloved Fati was an innocent she never guy, said and uh, he was only the victim of Himmler and Hitler and the victorious justice in Nuremberg. She never did this. But my siblings did it afterwards. Our father was an innocent victim against all the files we had. He was an innocent uh, victim of Hitler, Himmler and the victorious justice in but your mother knew, of course, that he was absolutely up to his neck. So I knew everything. I found a letter uh, where my mother wrote to my father in 1943. Do you remember this night when we were laying aside in our bed and you were telling me those horrible stories about killing all the Jews? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, and you have to, you have to say the, the Wawel Castle in Krakow was like a king's yard. There were a lot of people and uh, a lot of sexual relationships between the SS, between the normal soldiers, be, between the, the, all the secretaries and the uh, guys who helped my father to ruin this country. That's for sure. So everybody was telling to each other what was really going on. And for instance, I talked also to people who were in school, in the German high school in Krakow, uh, together with my eldest sisters. And they told me they knew nearly every day they saw killed hostages or at the gallows open street, some Poland. And once, by the way, my eldest brother, Norman, who was 11 and a half years older than me, uh, was playing football near the Wawel, and suddenly they heard some men singing the national anthem of Poland. And one of the youngsters said, oh, now they are shooting poles again. And they were running around some corners and they were lying about 30 to 50 poles uh, shot by the Germans. And afterward, he had lunch or dinner with my father. On the Wawel, the two of them were alone. 
And my brother Norman was asking this powerful father, Fatih, I've just seen uh, killed people in the street. What's going on here? And my father, the powerful governor general, threw down fork and knife, jumped from his seat and screamed at my brother, I don't want to hear anything, and ran out of the room. That was his reaction. So he knew exactly what was going on. But it sounds like he also wanted to sort of... He knew what was going on, he knew it was wrong, and was, but couldn't resist the power that he was given. Do you think that, that's the case? That's the case. Do you, do you, uh, think, do, do you think there were... There were there was any any sense of of guilt of revulsion about what he was doing because that sort of slightly suggests that was the case uh, two years before the end of the war a friend of his young of his students time visited him and my father said to him uh, I know our future you will become professor at the university and I will be hanged. So he knew also exactly. And in one of his sitting, which all was protocoled in the papers, he was saying, I just found out that I have the honor on the New York Times uh, war crimes list, I am the number one. And he seemed to be proud of it. So he knew exactly what he will end up, I would say. But, I mean, you, you've spent a lot of time thinking about your parents and, and thinking about what they did. Why do you think he allowed himself to take this course? Why, why, why a cultured, educated man... Is it because of his love of Hitler? Is it, is it power? What, it, what is it that led him to be so corrupted? Uh, it, we have to start with the beginning, not that we take too much time. Sure. He was born in 1900. So he grew up in our famous Kaiserreich, Emperor's Reich, where we were then, sorry for all the English people, the leading industrial nation, yes? And uh, the most noble prices went to the Germans. And we were something, yes? And suddenly after the First World War, nothing was left. They had taken away countries from us and inflation was bigger and bigger, became bigger and bigger. And he was writing in his youth diary, Germany needs its honor back. We have to have one strong man who get back the honor for Germany. Maybe it's me. It was the same words, which, by the way, also Goebbels wrote into his youth diary. We need a strong man, and it was Hitler, whom he met in Munich when uh, Hitler delivered the speech. And there he fell in love. But it's only one part of the answer. Then rebuilding Germany as a powerful nation again. That was, for him, fulfilling of his wish and of the wish of the middle class in Germany, I would say. Therefore, they also were willing to follow Hitler. And then 
in between, once he knelt also for my mother and said, Brigitte, I would like to own, to earn 1,000 marks a month, which is correct. I also wanted to have this when I begin my profession. And then he was used to be someone, right. uh, to be famous inside Germany, especially inside uh, the law. All the judges, all the lawyers have to hear him. So he was something. And he became used to it. And on the other hand, he knew for sure, I'm following someone who is starting a war, who is used to kill all people who are opposite to him or opponents to him. So in this, he put aside, he really put aside voluntarily. Right. He could have resigned. He couldn't have gone into the resistance, but he could have shown an attest to the Führer saying, Heil Hitler, my Führer, I love you, I love your movement, and I would pay everything, but look at this attest from my doctor. My, <laughs> well, my heart is too weak, or my lungs are too weak, or what else? So there was a route out. There wasn't. He, he never wanted, till to the end. And on the other hand, that's the second thing I really accuse him of. He was on a, one of the biggest cowards I came across. And this was one of the cowards which it brought him to the gallows, really. He could also have resigned as a governor general. Mm. Could. He had a love affair, yes, with Lily who showed up again in 1942. It was, he, uh, he was in love when he was 12 years old. He fell in love to this lady, uh, also a girl then. And uh, she had a son, a son uh, vanished at the uh, Russian frontier, and he remembered Hans Frank. And they fell in love again. And my father started the divorce. And my mother said, a wonderful sentence, by the way, for a journalist especially. I like to be more the widow of a rice minister instead of a divorced wife. Great sentence. And he showed, uh, he sent a picture of all the family without the father to Hitler, saying, how can a man leave for a married woman such a wonderful really Aryan-German family. Like yours. <laughs> and, my, and Hitler got the files. Within the war, you have to imagine, he got the files from this divorce and forbade my father the divorce. In this opinion, we all grew up, but it was quite different. Bormann, the secretary of, of Hitler, wrote to my father, Hitler, the Führer, cannot give you the permission for the divorce. Besides, you are resigning from your post as governor general and Reichsminister. So, now my father was sitting there. This wonderful address, Wawe, Castle, Governor General, Krakow. Ne? 
owner of Mercedes, owner of other castles, owner of a villa in Berlin. And then a bloody lady, Lily, two years older than him, his wife was five years older than him, should he really leave this? It could have been a chance, and I think it could have saved him from the gallows. Yes. And he would have resigned in 1942. But the other things were much more, and he lied to Lily, he lied to the family. Unfortunately, Hitler forbade the divorce till after the war. That was him. That was him. Well educated, playing piano in really, really good. Being friend of Richard Strauss, for instance, mm. close friend, yes. Going till to the gallows. Unbelievable. For and, me. and as a boy, I mean, did, did your parents ever show, I mean, do you think your, your father was capable of, of, of affection? I mean, did he ever show you any affection? I remember the story of when we went into your, the same bathroom that was your father's yes. and it's still there with this very fancy bath that you lure yourself into and there's the washstands on there. There was a bath tube, you, you have to go down three stairs. That's right. And that was extraordinary for me. It was really great. Uh, it's the only thing, scene I have in mind from my father and me. Uh, he was shaving, I was going into his bathroom and he was shaving and gave something of his uh, foam to my nose. And why did it burn into my brain? Because it was the only nice scene I had with my father. But the beginning of our relationship uh, was what later, I would say, had saved my personal li life. My father didn't think that I'm his son, but the son of his best friend, Karl Lasch, who also was governor under his direction. And uh, because my mother also had some uh, sexual affairs. Therefore, he refused to acknowledge me. And there was the most, for me, the most, uh, uh, most important scene I had with my father. It was in the castle of Warsaw. There was a big table and uh, I was running around this table longing to get into his arms and my father was always on the other side saying to me, what do you want? You are not my son, you are not belonging to this family, you are a stranger. In German you call it Fremdi, yes? And uh, I was weeping and I was getting to get into his arms and he refused. And then you have two choices. You can become a psychological wreck, which many of my readers say it has been. <laughs> or the other, you build up a very healthy distance. And this I did. And the first act of showing my distance was when he fled Krakow coming to our house at uh, Lake of Schlierse in Upper Bavaria. He was standing there, his spectacles were lying at something like this, more expensive, stolen from French for sure. And I took his spectacles, took both of this and broke it to the side. And I will never forget the 
really the face of my father was really suddenly like terrified. And he gave me a big clap, which I for sure have earned, because even for a rice minister at this time, it was very difficult <laughs> to get new spectacles. It was in the spring of 45. And this was really out of nothing. There was no argument between us before. Yeah? <laughs> and uh, by the way, I found out this with a, that he refused to acknowledge me as his child. Uh, when Karl Lasch was shot by Himmler, because Himmler wanted to replace my father, but Hitler said, no, no, let me have this thuggish character in this position. So he took other relatives and nearby friends of him. And so he took Lasch. And when Lasch was dead, he came to my mother and said, as you can imagine what a happy marriage this was, now also Nikki's father is dead. Nikki is my name at home. And my mother was really upset and said, no, all your children are from yours. My mother was a very experienced lover. And uh, she always had uh, old lovers. She wanted to flee out of Forst, which is a little town near the Polish, the Polish border now. And one of the old uh, lovers brought her to Munich. And she was a secretary as a complete Prussian. He was a secretary in the Bavarian parliament at this time. But it works. And she, uh, at the side, she wrote uh, doctor works and for habilitation in the technical university. And she said to the other girls who were typewriting that, if a man shows up who I'm starting to like and I would like, I will make this and you send him to me. And Hans Frank showed up. Very good looking, five years younger. And so he forced him to fall in love with her. And there's no doubt about your paternity at all. <laughs> we need to take a short break right now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James is talking to Nicholas Frank at the We Have Ways Festival. So at the end of the war, I mean, can, can you, I mean by, the, by 1945, you're six years old and... I mean, what can you remember of the fall of the, of the Reich and the end of your time in Poland? And presumably you're on the run and grabbing great works of art as you go. Uh, well, not you, but your parents, rather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were autumn '44. We went uh, to Bavaria, but always I have to say, in the years before, we always were only five to six months in Poland. Uh, the other months we were back home in uh, Bavaria. Right. And uh, suddenly uh, the much adored family in this little village was a bunch of criminals. That was a complete difference uh, when the war was over. And all our friends, especially for my mother, were gone. Nobody wanted to have to do anything. And the good thing was uh, the Americans took away everything from us. Suddenly my mother and also her five children were very poor, really we were very poor. 
And therefore, I have quite a different attitude towards my mother than to my father. Uh, she worked herself out and died completely burned out in the age of 63. Mm. Uh, there, really, she was great. And she was one of the persons I very rarely met during my long life now, who was completely living in reality. And she also, to the big uh, furious of my father, he said inside the family when we were having dinner, he said, my dear friends, I know exactly once upon a time I will have to nourish the family again with my typewriting machine. My father was furious sitting aside. And she was right, she was right. She was never a member of the Nazi party. And she hated when my father, as all the other top Nazis, if they are delivering speeches, they always were shouting. It was such a screaming all over the place. I always say they want to hide their bad conscience. So they had to scream. So, and then I found out that she really worked her ass off for us. And we gave it back. Mm. All the five children, we gave her back no love because we weren't loved from her till to the end of the war. That was our cruelty. Mm. Today I regret this because she really did a lot for us. And she never ever said what a good time we had and what glorious family we are and all this, never, never. But she was quite a hard woman, wasn't she? I mean, to put she it mildly. She was a very ice-cold woman. I mean, my, the, the father O'Connor who baptized my, my father into the Catholic Church again. I oh, he's the priest in the, uh, the Nuremberg in the prison. Yes, he was a priest. And uh, I visited him when, when I started to write this book in his uh, place near Albany, near New York. And he said to me, Nicholas, I have to say this. Your father, even in his cell, he was still afraid of your mother. <laughs> and that's the same with me and my four siblings. If my mother could make very thin lips and she had a look who was, in German, you would say, like a Röntgenstrahl, I can't change it into English. And she knew every weak side of me and of all the others, especially for all the men. And she had chosen the weakest man. She had a lot of lovers. Many wanted to, to marry her. But she had chosen this Hans Frank. I mean, your father was on, put on trial. He was convicted um, and hanged in October 1946. But you visited him, didn't you, before he was executed? Uh, in, the, in the summertime of 46, uh, the defending lawyer of my father, Dr. Seidel from Munich, he came to our mother and said, uh, Mrs. Frank, um, the proofs against your husband are so strong, uh, I think he will get the death penalty. And this we knew, all the five children knew it. 
And suddenly we got the permission to visit uh, our father and husband once uh, in the Nuremberg trial. It was before they handed out the verdicts. And so we were going by train and I was sure that will be, when I was seven years old, that will be my last visit with my father. And uh, when we entered this big room, there was a lot of windows, and on the, on the opposite side from the entrance were sitting behind this glass window, uh, Göring, and in front his wife, besides her, her daughter and his daughter, Edda. And on the right-hand side was in the midst, behind the window sitting my father, besides a white-helmet American soldier, a guard who for sure was fluent in German, I would say. And I was sitting on my mother's lap. My father was laughing at me and saying, behind this window, oh, Nicky, nice to see you. Oh, we will very soon celebrate Christmas in our house at the Lake of Schliersee, and it will be great fun, and we will play again this uh, record from uh, Fra Diavolo, and I will tell you the story of Mr. Huber, who is so afraid of robbers, but he is a robber himself, and I really, I swear it to you, I was sitting on my mother's lap thinking, why are you lying? You will be hanged, you know it. Why are you lying? And that was so disappointing for me, really, really. That was my last visit. And it absolutely was, and, and he was executed along with the others. In the years that followed, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, as, as Germany, West Germany, then East Germany, then unification, Germany kind of sort of tried to come to terms with what had happened during the 12 years of the Third Reich. But as the son of Hans Frank, how, how, how did you all deal with it differently? I mean, Martin Bormann Jr. became a Roman Catholic priest, didn't he? We were talking earlier about... But he left his priesthood and married a nun. Yes, he did. He did. <laughs> and you can read into that whatever you want. <laughs> but we were talking about Katrin um, Himmler, uh, Himmler's great niece, who is the sweetest person you could ever meet. She's an absolutely lovely Besides lady. Besides my wife. Apart from your wife. But she's a lovely lady, and, and, but, but she's decided to stick with the, with the keep the name, and, and she talks about her family heritage because she recognizes that she is she. She's, she's nothing to do with Heinrich Himmler. They may share, you know, a family link and they may share the same surname, but, but, but that is it. But you've taken a very different route to a lot of other children of the leading Nazis. Uh, the first thing is Frank is a very familiar name in Germany. Mm. It's like Müller or Schmidt. So uh, never it came uh, to a scene when I say, uh, it's me, Nicholas Frank, wait a minute, are you the son of this butcher of Poland? Never. And uh, there was it, I could hide, but uh, 
I never did this. On the other hand, I, the only philosophical idea I had in my life, don't let your father ruin your life. So when I started to write this first book, uh, I was nearly 50 years old. But uh, from the very beginning, when I was grown up, I started to interview all my relatives and the friends of my mother and all the uh, officials of the government general who still had survived. I was always interested in. And uh, there I became a journalist most of the time, 23 years with Stern magazine. You remember Hitler diaries, but I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and uh, I wrote this book because this was what really has upset me more and more, is the silence in Germany. Um, the big majority of the, silent, of the Germans never really acknowledged the crimes the Germans have committed. They never spoke about their own cowardice, how they looked away when the Jewish neighbors were transported away. And all this kind, and this made me more and more furious, this silence. And therefore I opened up and uh, broke this taboo to honor your parents, whatever they have did, done. And uh, I thought it's a political book. And for instance, my fellow journalists will really say, at least somebody is open up. And so, I mean, it caused quite a Ferrari in Germany when it, it was, came out. Yes, because, and also my fellow journalists. And I understand this, because if you read as a German this book, immediately you will be reminded on your own family. And you have to say, when you read my four letter words against my father, they have to think, oh, what has my father done? What, what, what's, why is this SS uniform still hanging in this shrine? And why is this and that? And this they are refusing. And therefore they say, the, the main attack against this book is you can't uh, write against someone who maybe was a criminal in this way. You have to be, in German you call it, sachlich. You don't have to accuse him in a bad language also. Right. And uh, I think this I couldn't have done. A son never could write a true biography about his father. It would really nothing. But you did a lot of research for it. I mean, I should just yes, say that the book sure. is written as though to your father, isn't it? it you, you're, you're talking to him. It's, it's like you're sat in front of him and you're going through his life, going through what he did, your own thoughts, your own memories, your dreams, nightmares, whatever you want to call them, your imaginings. It, it's an unbelievably powerful book. I, I would urge all of you to get it and read it because just as I'm hoping it was a cathartic experience for you, it's, it's, it's important to understand. It, it, it's, it's the most honest approach to, to coming to terms with what Germany went through that I've, I've ever come across. 
Um, I, I thought it was an absolutely remarkable book, Nick, without wanting to um, sound like a sycophant. I don't think that I came to terms with it because uh, there was one shock I got uh, in the autumn of 45. In Bavaria came out the first now democratic newspapers and magazines from uh, the Americans. And in one of these issues, there were a lot of pictures from concentration camp, from a lot of corpses. Also of corpses of my young age then, children. And uh, underwritten always was Poland. And I grew up thinking Poland was a private property of the Frank family. And uh, suddenly, my father, as the most powerful person, was connected with these corpses. Well, my eldest brother, Norman, saw the same pictures and went to our mother, he later told me, and said, Mutti, if those pictures are true, our father has no chance. And these pictures gave me the shock. Uh, for my life. And the victims, I have to say, are still alive. I am now 82 and a half years old. I could have led and have it a wonderful life. A lazy one, but wonderful. I had really much luck. And we took these chances away from so many millions of innocent people. And they were young. And there also the right-wing German, as every other German, has in his brain pictures of caterpillars who pulling mountains of corpses into mass graves after they liberated our concentration camps. And everybody in Germany knows what really was done, was committed by the Germans. And not, as you always, if it comes to this, very strangely the Germans are speaking from the Nazis, as if only you have to show your party membership pass before you start killing someone. So the Germans used to hide themselves with this very strange tribe who entered Germany in 33 and vanished in 45. It had nothing to do with Germans. Yes. That's really what, this is the first step to hide away and so. And after the 8th of May, the total capitulation of Germany, nobody knew something what has happened. Neither, nobody. But on the other hand, my sister Sigrid, the oldest one, wrote to my mother in 1944 a letter. She was then helping as a nurse in a hospital for wounded soldiers. And she wrote to my mother in between, something starting like, by the way, all the soldiers here 
and the others are very much afraid if we are really losing this war because of what we have done on cruelties to the Jews. That was all. She didn't write, Mother, could you imagine what I have just heard? There are people who are saying we have done something evil to the Jews. Could you imagine nothing? It was to someone who knows it from someone who knows it. And so it was with whole Germany. Maybe a very old farmer's wife in the Schwarzwald or in Upper Bavaria didn't know, but most of them were knowing it. Yeah, I recently saw, was, was uh, involved with a TV program where we got um, a lot of footage that had been lost, you know, footage that was taken in the, uh, during the war and ended up in people's attics and then ended up in being handed in and becoming part of small little archives that everyone's forgotten about. And suddenly there's all these home movies from soldiers, from citizens and all the rest of it. And it's absolutely clear. You know, there's lots of sh footage of people beating up Jews in the street in eastern parts of, you know, USSR, of, of executions. There's lots and lots of footage of people hanging. Now, these are being taken by soldiers. They're then being sent, you know, taken back to Berlin or wherever, on, or Hamburg on leave and developed you know, yeah. and put in the attic and shown and, and you know, so the, the developers at the shop are seeing them, they're going to talk to people, aren't they? God, yeah. I can't believe what I just saw. Um, and then and you're going to be talking about it and showing it to your families. <coughs> you know, you're, you're, you're right, people would know. You know, uh, you, Hitler, you can't hide that. Uh, Hitler experienced in the First World War that nobody has holidays from the soldiers. It was during the Second World War, every soldier has the right to have holidays from right. the frontier from all the SS brigades. So they went at home and telling, also telling what was going on in the East and in the West with the Jews and with all the others. Uh, that's for, for sure. But if I would uh, look at every flat in Germany, I would find a lot of uh, mobiliar of Jewish people. It was immediately when the Jewish neighbors were uh, taken away, the Germans came. The Nazis in this time, it was really the Nazi party made big uh, markets full of Jewish mobiliar, and so they could take it. But did your, your siblings ever come to terms of it, do you think? I mean, do, did they ever accept what your father and by association your mother were involved with? Uh, three of my four siblings, uh, were till to their very early end, we're saying our father was an innocent victim of Hitler, Himmler, and the victors justice in Nuremberg. Uh, my next elder sister, Kitty, she wrote into her youth diary, I will not become older than Fatih, than our father. And my father was hanged when he was 46 years old, so she committed suicide when she became 46 years old. She had cancer. But due to the, what the doctors told us, she could have lived five, six more years at this time. And uh, my fourth sibling, Norman, he used to say, uh, yes, yes, Nikki, as I'm called at home, I know our father was a criminal, but I still love him. And this was a trap he never found a way out. So 
he became an alcoholic, but the wittiest I ever came across when he was not drunk. And uh, he really was like all the four others. They really, they had a trauma mm. that our father was taken away. And uh, your older my brother Norman became the more he forgot about his crimes, and the love became stronger and stronger. Mm. And my next elder brother, who was, in comparison to me, a brilliant, wonderful-looking guy, very sportive, brown, and great guy. And he started to drink milk when he was about 25 years old. He never smoked, he never had any alcohols but milk, till to 13 liter a day. His yeah. wife didn't know how to hide the milk for the babies because she was always after it. So he became fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. And that was also for me, as a kitchen psychologist, he couldn't deal with his father. Mm. And we had a lot of uh, arguments. But what the Frank family did, the children, we always stuck together. We were completely different <laughs> opinions, but we had uh, nice children, they played with each other and so it was, that was a good thing. But uh, for instance, Gideon committed suicide, uh, she always had a candle burning to honor her father and uh, my eldest sister, Secret, went with her second husband to South Africa because she really liked the apartheid. <laughs> because there she found Untermenschen wieder, mm. subhuman people. She died also there. She was very upset when she read the book. Well, Nicholas, this has been, um, it's been a wonderfully honest uh, talk. I, I know you're willing to go and sign some books afterwards. I'm sorry we haven't done questions. It just sort of felt better to me to keep going with the conversation. And I'm sure, Nick, you'd be happy to answer questions afterwards when you're uh, signing a few books or what have you. But but I can't thank you enough for coming over. I think it's a perspective of the war that, that we here in the UK don't really think about very much. Um, but obviously, it's a burden you've had to kind of carry all these years and one you've dealt with in, a, in an extraordinary way. Uh, and the book really is an incredible book so um thank you for coming all the way over to talk to us today and sharing what must be i don't know difficult difficult uh, and complicated memories with us all so thank you thank you Thank you very much.